The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we begin today with a great moment in literary autobiography. In particular, the autobiography of a passionate advocate for literature, Ford Maddox Ford. He was himself a great writer. His novel, The Good Soldier, is one of those sneaky great classics of modernism. Not as showy as Ulysses or The Wasteland, but very, very good. We've talked about that book a few times here on the podcast. But today we hear from his memoirs when he was working from a period when he was working as the editor of the English Review. Quote, In the year when my eyes first fell on words written by Norman Douglas, G.H. Tomlinson, Wyndham Lewis, Ezra Pound, and others, upon a day I received a letter from a young schoolteacher in Nottingham. I can still see the handwriting, as if drawn with sepia, rather than written in ink, on gray-blue notepaper. It said that the writer knew a young man who wrote, as she thought, admirably, but was too shy to send his work to editors. Would I care to see some of his writing? In that way, I came to read the first words of a new author. The small locomotive engine, number four, came clanking, stumbling down from Selston with seven full wagons. It appeared round the corner with loud threats of speed, but the colt that it startled from among the gorse, which still flickered indistinctly in the raw afternoon, outdistanced it in a canter. A woman walking up the railway line to Underwood held her basket aside and watched the footplate of the engine advancing. I was reading in the twilight in the long 18th century room that was at once the office of the English Review and my drawing room. My eyes were tired. I had been reading all day, so I did not go any further with the story. I laid it in the basket for accepted manuscripts. My secretary looked up and said, You've got another genius? I answered, It's a big one this time, and went upstairs to dress. That genius Ford recognized was David Herbert Lawrence, born in 1885, the son of a barely literate coal miner and a mother who had once been a prospective teacher but was forced to work in a lace factory to help make ends meet. The story, whose first few lines so impressed Ford, was called The Odor of Chrysanthemums. We'll hear that story and discuss it with our old friend Mike Palindrome today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm very glad to have you here with me today. We have a great short story. And I don't know, did I mention this? We're going to read it as well. So don't worry if you haven't heard it. You get a chance to listen in and hear this story by D.H. Lawrence. It's truly a classic. Mike and I looked at two short stories by D.H. Lawrence. One of them, this one, Odor of Chrysanthemums, I would say is is pretty well known, included in a lot of anthologies and so on. And the other one is less known, but less well known. But both of them are, are, boy, I'm having trouble today. Both of them are very rich territory indeed. Fertile. Laurentian. So, without further ado, let's bring out Mike to kick things off. We'll hear from Mike. 
And then we'll take a break. We'll hear uh, Odor of Chrysanthemums and take another break. And then Mike and I will return to analyze the story. That's all coming up after this. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike P, which stands for Mike Palindrome, although you could be forgiven if you think it stands for Mike Proust, as we'll discuss. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So before we dive into D.H. Lawrence, let's talk about Proust. What is the Proust Conference you're planning to attend? So the Alliance Française in D.C. has set up uh, a three-day Proust festival at the French Embassy. Hmm. Um, next week in November, and uh, I've been asked to speak on the panel. So there's, it's gonna. The first day there'll be a screening of the 1999 film Time Regained. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, I haven't seen it, but I'm familiar with it. I think I can picture it. Oh, it's really great. Yeah, it's got Catherine Deneuve as Odette, mm. um, and I forget who plays Gilbert, and oh, John Malkovich plays Baron. Oh, Char- right. Right. And uh, yeah, it's, he's a surrealist director, the Spanish director. And then the second day, there'll be a, a panel about all things Proust. And then the third on the third day, there'll be a marathon reading by fellow readers, fans with a musical interlude by a high school orchestra. Wow. OK, so how did your involvement in this come about? So I've been running, as you know, I've been running these slow read book club oh yeah on twitter and I, i've actually I've run 14 of them now <laughs> uh, in a while so we did one of all of proust we took 330 days uh in 2021 to 2022 and i i guess it was it was the fact that i was running it and also i'd like to think the quality of my tweets and, and <laughs> <laughs> it was it was an interesting discussion i i, I think i I mean, people try to back away. There, there were some readers who were like, I don't know if I can keep going. I was like, yes, you can. You have to. Mm, so, yeah, <laughs> I was a I was a good ringleader, cheerleader. Right. OK, so what's going to be your role at the conference? I think I'm going to be one of these speakers that brings notes onto stage. I don't know. That's kind of frowned upon, right? <laughs> Is that how they're going to introduce you? This is our our fifth uh, speaker who brings notes onto the stage. Will be Mike. I just feel like I never see I never see panelists with notes. Uh, anyway, but I, I you know I want to I want to um, focus on uh, the details in in Proust. I feel like there's so much discussion in general terms, which can be interesting. But I want to focus on specific scenes and phrasings. And I mean, obviously, I'll also talk about like the experience of reading Proust for a modern in, in this modern age and yeah. with social media. And, um, right. And I, I, I'm going to going to talk about his influences on me as a reader and a, as a writer. Yeah, it's one of these. It's it, it's kind of hard to know where to draw lines like limits like like Joyce I think you know it's almost you don't want to just say this this is about 
Dublin and Joyce. But yeah, there there probably is some benefit to trying to limit it somewhat. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you're not, it sounds like you're not quite ready yet. You're still preparing. Well, I was thinking I'll never be ready for it. Mm, yeah. I, you know, there's so much, I, I, like I just found a Walter Benjamin essay in Illuminations by Proust that I'm sure I've read <laughs> and I started to read it and I was like, I can't remember this, you know, and then I've read a lot of biographies. I, I really love Edmund White's slim biography on Proust and I was I was thinking if I had the time I would try to reread it yeah yeah well I think framing it around this experience you had running this Twitter online Twitter together of reading of Proust is going to be interesting to everybody and I'm sure that everything you hang in there along the way on that framework will be sort of icing on the cake but I think they probably really want to know what's it like for you and what you have about 50 people or something all reading Proust and all commenting on it day by day and sort of 10 page at a time way. Yeah. I, you know, a lot of people want to read Proust and never get around to it. Yeah. And then the, yeah. the people who do, um, so many give up, including myself. I, I, I gave up probably the, the first attempt. I, uh, you know, my first attempt. And so there's definitely some, there are insights into these kind of reading groups with strangers, which is interesting versus the in-person reading groups. Cause I'm also in an in-person reading group and we're very disciplined, but I've heard these mm. quasi horror stories where people show up, they talk about the book for 15 minutes and then they talk, yeah. they start complaining about Trump. People start talking about other things and then it turns out that half the people haven't even read the book or, you know, it's kind of like they were kind of coming there looking for a, an excuse to socialize. Yeah. And, and I, I think any excuse to get groups together as you age are, are wonderful. Mm -hmm. I do feel like social circles shrink. And I mean, that's one of the things that was great about the slow read is that a lot of people whose social circles had kind of been frozen for maybe decades. Mm. Um, and then COVID happened. So this was during the, the pandemic. These bigger reading groups really opened the, their worlds up and people found fellow re readers who were intense. I mean, I, I, I was re meeting people who were reading 50 to 100 books a year. Mm, right. Okay. Well, this all sounds great. And it's here in D.C. So you and I can go out for Linden Blossom Tea and Madeleines or maybe... Uh, <laughs> Vouv Clicquot champagne. Do you drink champagne, by the way? I do. Yeah. I do. Sure. And drinks, I was going to ask you about drinks that you've gotten into because of a literary reference. And I know Pernod is one of them way back when, but anything else that you've you've started drinking because your favorite author or because the characters in a book were drinking it? I, when I was younger, I was very impressionable. I remember really drinking a lot of white wine because of Hemingway. Yeah. Especially, um, Sun also rises. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> but I, I think I mentioned to you that back then wine had, uh, something like half the alcohol that mm, it does today. Right. Right. So they could drink a lot more. So for me, I mean, gin is something I don't think I ever drank until Fitzgerald was talking about it. And he was always talking about it from an alcoholic's perspective of how it's not smellable <laughs> right. on the breath. 
he was always talking about that. Oh yeah, he 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 was drinking gin because you couldn't smell it on his breath, which is a real um, kind of a sad quality for <laughs> to recommend an, an alcoholic beverage for that others won't be able to detect it that you've been drinking again. Yeah, I I go back and forth with gin and whiskey and bourbon. To me, it it, it seems like a lot of work. Mm. <laughs> to get to appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, I think I went through a Hemingway rum phase as well, mm. probably from his Cuba days and Dostoevsky and vodka or uh, George Orwell kind of always makes me want to travel down to the pub. And you got me started on non-alcoholic beer. Oh, yeah. That that stuff's um, really improved because I, I yeah. had tried it. I tried Buckler and some of this stuff probably about 10 years ago, and I was so disgusted by it. But, um, yeah. It's, it's kind of we, nice. We should get them to sponsor. It's kind of, yeah, get, uh, right. Some of these non-alcoholic beers to sponsor the podcast. Yeah, it's good because you can enjoy the taste and feel refreshed, but still uh, you, the words won't be swimming on the page, and you can also <laughs> drive afterwards. That's a big thing for me because yeah. my kid, I got to drive him around at all these practices and everything. So, But some of the great literary discussions I've had have been with the aid of alcohol. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So because this is actually, by the time this episode airs, the conference will probably be over, but we'll, next time we talk, we can uh, share your experience with our listeners. We'll hear how things went at the Proust conference. Sounds good. Okay. So DH Lawrence, what's your relationship with him been like over the years? Did you ever go through a DH Lawrence phase? You know, I mean, I guess I'm getting older because I thought I I had gone through such a phase, but yeah. I've I've only read Sons and Lovers. Oh, and was... so you went back to your book? You record all the books that you've read? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have I have lists going back to when I was 18. And you couldn't find Lady um, Chatterley's Lover or no, The Rainbow but, or anything else in there. But I own Women in Love. Uh huh. Rainbow and Lady Chatter- Chatterley's Lover, and I guess I just never went back to. I, it's funny because I, I associate him with like E.M. Forrester. Yep, and they probably predate James and Woodhouse, right? By uh, a little, yeah. Well, James, James. Well, actually, no, there's overlap with James. Yeah, yeah, Woodhouse. yeah. It it always felt to me like like D.H. Lawrence was kind of in that. He was in that bridge or that gap where it did feel like others had moved on to writing a different kind of novel. And so it felt a little bit like, oh, well, if this is coming out in these years, I'd rather be reading something with a more modernist yeah, you know, I, approach. And so it did feel like he was a little out of step with his time. It, it felt dated to me in a way and older, which it right. probably wouldn't have if it had come out in 1850. But right. because he was writing a Victorian novel, basically, in 1910 or 1920, it would feel a little bit more like, oh, wait, this is when we should be clearing the decks a little bit, and we should be getting some some Virginia Woolf or James Joyce mm-hmm. at this time. Yeah, I turned to Woolf. I turned to Huxley. I mm-hmm. read mm-hmm. all of Huxley. I turned to Christopher Isherwood and Auden. I mean, I, I didn't realize Lawrence was such a prolific poet. Yeah, um, right. So, yeah, it was in my mind, I think of I loved Sons and Lovers. And Mm -hmm. in my mind, I think of him as an important writer, but he hasn't been very important to me. Yeah. (laughs) 
I the thing that had influenced me the most was his essays on American literature. He has a book of them, and he, it's oh, wow. pretty wild. And his take on it kind of made me like him and want to read more of him. He'd basically have an essay on the autobiography of Ben Franklin, and and the point would be like, screw you, Ben Franklin, you know, <laughs> like with your schemes and your methods, your limitations on yourself and the way you try to schematize life. That's not what life is, Ben Franklin. You know, it would be that would be kind of the tone. And it was very engaging and very, a lot of times I would disagree with him on this author or that, but it was a very compelling voice. And so he gets these passions, he gets going and he gets on a roll and it's kind of fun to read him then. There are parts of him that are very English and others that don't really strike me as very English. Yeah, they're kind Um, of renegade and pagan. Yeah, he shifts to very direct, observations about like sensuality and intelligence and yeah like the the way he engages the reader is very i find very abrupt yeah which is good right right okay so we're going to take a break and then listen to this story odor of chrysanthemums and then we'll do a draft of our top six things we like about it so this was written in 1909 and published in 1911 Is there anything our listeners should be thinking about before we hear the story? No. Okay. So let's uh, take our break now and we'll come back with the story and then you and I will return to discuss it. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Odor of Chrysanthemums by D. H. Lawrence. One. The small locomotive engine number four came clanking, stumbling down from Selston with seven full wagons. It appeared round the corner with loud threats of speed, but the colt that it startled from among the gorse, which still flickered indistinctly in the raw afternoon, outdistanced it at a canter. A woman walking up the railway line to Underwood drew back into the hedge held her basket aside, and watched the footplate of the engine advancing. 
The trucks thumped heavily past, one by one, with slow, inevitable movement, as she stood insignificantly trapped between the jolting black wagons and the hedge. Then they curved away towards the coppice where the withered oak leaves dropped noiselessly, while the birds, pulling at the scarlet hips beside the track, made off into the dusk that had already crept into the spinney. In the open, the smoke from the engine sank and cleaved to the rough grass. The fields were dreary and forsaken, and in the marshy strip that led to the whimsy, a reedy pit pond, the fowls had already abandoned their run among the alders to roost in the tarred fowl house. The pit bank loomed up beyond the pond, flames like red sores licking its ashy sides in the afternoon's stagnant light. Just beyond rose the tapering chimneys and the clumsy black headstocks of Brinsley Colliery. The two wheels were spinning fast up against the sky, and the winding engine wrapped out its little spasms. The miners were being turned up. The engine whistled as it came into the wide bay of railway lines beside the colliery, where rows of trucks stood in harbor. Miners, single, trailing and in groups, passed like shadows diverging home. At the edge of the ribbed level of sidings squat a low cottage, three steps down from the cinder track. A large, bony vine clutched at the house, as if to claw down the tiled roof. Round the bricked yard grew a few wintry primroses. Beyond, the long garden sloped down to a bush-covered brook course. There were some twiggy apple trees, winter-crack trees, and ragged cabbages. Beside the path hung disheveled pink chrysanthemums, like pink cloths hung on bushes. A woman came stooping out of the felt-covered fowl house halfway down the garden. She closed and padlocked the door, then drew herself erect, having brushed some bits from her white apron. She was a tall woman of imperious mien, handsome with definite black eyebrows. Her smooth black hair was parted exactly. For a few moments she stood steadily watching the miners as they passed along the railway. Then she turned towards the brook course. Her face was calm and set. Her mouth was closed with disillusionment. After a moment, she called, John! There was no answer. She waited and then said distinctly, Where are you? Here, replied a child's sulky voice from among the bushes. The woman looked piercingly through the dusk. Are you at that brook? She asked sternly. For answer, the child showed himself before the raspberry canes that rose like whips. He was a small, sturdy boy of five. He stood quite still, defiantly. Oh, said the mother, conciliated, I thought you were down at that wet brook, and you remember what I told you. The boy did not move or answer. Come, come on in, she said more gently. It's getting dark. There's your grandfather's engine coming down the line. The lad advanced slowly with resentful, taciturn movement. He was dressed in trousers and waistcoat of cloth that was too thick and hard for the size of the garments. They were evidently cut down from a man's clothes. As they went slowly towards the house, he tore at the ragged wisps of chrysanthemums and dropped the petals in handfuls along the path. Don't do that. It does look nasty, said his mother. He refrained, and she suddenly pitiful, broke off a twig with three or four wan flowers and held them against her face. 
When mother and son reached the yard, her hand hesitated, and instead of laying the flower aside, she pushed it in her apron band. The mother and son stood at the foot of the three steps looking across the bay of lines at the passing home of the miners. The trundle of the small train was imminent. Suddenly the engine loomed past the house and came to a stop opposite the gate. The engine driver, a short man with round gray beard, leaned out of the cab high above the woman. "'Have you got a cup of tea?' he said in a cheery, hearty fashion. It was her father. She went in, saying she would mash. Directly she returned. "'I didn't come to see you on Sunday,' began the little gray-bearded man. "'I didn't expect you,' said his daughter. The engine driver winced. Then, reassuming his cheery, airy manner, he said, "'Oh, have you heard then? Well, and what do you think?' "'I think it is soon enough,' she replied. At her brief censure, the little man made an impatient gesture and said coaxingly, yet with dangerous coldness, "'Well, what's a man to do? It's no sort of life for a man of my years to sit at my own hearth like a stranger. And if I'm going to marry again, it may as well be soon as late. What does it matter to anybody?' The woman did not reply, but turned and went into the house. The man in the engine cab stood assertive till she returned with a cup of tea and a piece of bread and butter on a plate. She went up the steps and stood near the footplate of the hissing engine. "'You needn't have brought me bread and butter,' said her father, "'but a cup of tea?' He sipped appreciatively. "'It's very nice.' He sipped for a moment or two, then, "'I hear as Walter's got another bout on,' he said. "'When hasn't he?' said the woman bitterly. "'I heard tell of him and the Lord Nelson bragging as he was going to spend that b afore he went. Half a sovereign, that was.' "'When?' asked the woman. "'A sad day, night. I know that's true.' "'Very likely,' she laughed bitterly. "'He gives me twenty-three shillings.' "'Aye, it's a nice thing when a man can do nothing with his money but make a beast of himself.' said the gray-whiskered man. The woman turned her head away. Her father swallowed the last of his tea and handed her the cup. Aye, he sighed, wiping his mouth. It's a settler, it is. He put his hand on the lever. The little engine strained and groaned, and the train rumbled towards the crossing. The woman again looked across the metals. Darkness was settling over the spaces of the railway and trucks. The miners, in gray, somber groups, were still passing home. The winding engine pulsed hurriedly, with brief pauses. Elizabeth Bates looked at the dreary flow of men. Then she went indoors. Her husband did not come. The kitchen was small and full of firelight, red coals piled glowing up the chimney mouth. All the life of the room seemed in the white, warm hearth and the steel fender reflecting the red fire. The cloth was laid for tea, cups glinted in the shadows. At the back, where the lowest stairs protruded into the room, the boy sat struggling with a knife and a piece of white wood. He was almost hidden in the shadow. It was half past four. They had but to await the father's coming to begin tea. As the mother watched her son's sullen little struggle with the wood, she saw herself in his silence and pertinacity. She saw the father in her child's indifference to all but himself. She seemed to be occupied by her husband. He had probably gone past his home, slunk past his own door, to drink before he came in, while his dinner spoiled and wasted in waiting. 
She glanced at the clock, then took the potatoes to strain them in the yard. The garden and fields beyond the brook were closed in uncertain darkness. When she rose with the saucepan, leaving the drain steaming into the night behind her, she saw the yellow lamps were lit along the high road that went up the hill, away beyond the space of the railway lines and the field. Then again she watched the men trooping home, fewer now and fewer. Indoors the fire was sinking and the room was dark red. The woman put her saucepan on the hob and set a batter pudding near the mouth of the oven. Then she stood unmoving. Directly, gratefully, came quick young steps to the door. Someone hung on the latch a moment, then a little girl entered and began pulling off her outdoor things, dragging a mass of curls, just ripening from gold to brown, over her eyes with her hat. Her mother chid her for coming home late from school, and said she would have to keep her at home the dark winter days. "'Why, mother, it's hardly a bit dark yet. The lamp's not lighted, and my father's not home.' No, he isn't, but it's a quarter to five. Did you see anything of him? The child became serious. She looked at her mother with large, wistful blue eyes. No, mother, I've never seen him. Why? Has he come up and gone past to old Brinsley? He hasn't, mother, because I never saw him. He'd watch that, said the mother bitterly. He'd take care as you didn't see him. But you may depend upon it. He's seated in the Prince of Wales. He wouldn't be this late. The girl looked at her mother piteously. "'Let's have our teas, mother, should we?' said she. The mother called John to table. She opened the door once more and looked out across the darkness of the lines. All was deserted. She could not hear the winding engines. "'Perhaps,' she said to herself, "'he's stopped to get some ripping done.' They sat down to tea. John, at the end of the table near the door, was almost lost in the darkness. Their faces were hidden from each other. The girl crouched against the fender, slowly moving a thick piece of bread before the fire. The lad, his face a dusky mark on the shadow, sat watching her who was transfigured in the red glow. "'I do think it's beautiful to look in the fire,' said the child. "'Do you?' said her mother. "'Why?' "'It's so red and full of little caves, and it feels so nice, and you can fair smell it.' It'll want mending directly, replied her mother, and then if your father comes, he'll carry on and say there never is a fire when a man comes home sweating from the pit. A public house is always warm enough. There was silence, till the boy said complainingly, Make haste, our Annie. Well, I am doing. I can't make the fire do it no faster, can I? She keeps waffling it about so as to make her slow, grumbled the boy. Don't have such an evil imagination, child replied the mother. Soon the room was busy in the darkness with the crisp sound of crunching. The mother ate very little. She drank her tea determinedly and sat thinking. When she rose, her anger was evident in the stern unbending of her head. She looked at the pudding in the fender and broke out. It is a scandalous thing as a man can't even come home to his dinner. If it's crozzled up to a cinder, I don't see why I should care. Past his very door he goes to get to a public house, and here I sit with his dinner waiting for him. She went out. As she dropped piece after piece of coal on the red fire, the shadows fell on the walls, till the room was almost in total darkness. I cannot see, grumbled the invisible John. In spite of herself, the mother laughed. 
You know the way to your mouth, she said. She set the dustpan outside the door. When she came again like a shadow on the hearth, the lad repeated, complaining sulkily, I cannot see. Good gracious, cried the mother irritably. You're as bad as your father if it's a bit dusk. Nevertheless, she took a paper spill from a sheaf on the mantelpiece and proceeded to light the lamp that hung from the ceiling in the middle of the room. As she reached up, her figure displayed itself, just rounding with maternity. Oh, mother, exclaimed the girl. What, said the woman, suspended in the act of putting the lamp glass over the flame. The copper reflector shone handsomely on her as she stood with uplifted arm, turning to face her daughter. You've got a flower in your apron, said the child in a little rapture at this unusual event. Goodness me, exclaimed the woman, relieved. One would think the house was afire. She replaced the glass and waited a moment before turning up the wick. A pale shadow was seen floating vaguely on the floor. Let me smell, said the child, still rapturously, coming forward and putting her face to her mother's waist. Go along, silly, said the mother, turning up the lamp. The light revealed their suspense so that the woman felt it almost unbearable. Annie was still bending at her waist. Irritably, the mother took the flowers out from her apron band. Oh, mother, don't take them out, Annie cried, catching her hand and trying to replace the sprig. Such nonsense, said the mother, turning away. The child put the pale chrysanthemums to her lips, murmuring, Don't they smell beautiful? Her mother gave a short laugh. No, she said, not to me. It was chrysanthemums when I married him, and chrysanthemums when you were born, and the first time they ever brought him home drunk, he'd got brown chrysanthemums in his buttonhole. She looked at the children. Their eyes and their parted lips were wondering. The mother sat rocking in silence for some time. Then she looked at the clock. Twenty minutes to six! In a tone of fine, bitter carelessness, she continued, "Ah, eh, he'll not come now till they bring him. There he'll stick. But he needn't come rolling in here in his pit dirt, for I won't wash him. He can lie on the floor. Ah, what a fool I've been. What a fool. And this is what I came here for, to this dirty hole, rats and all, for him to slink past his very door. Twice last week, he's begun now. She silenced herself and rose to clear the table. While for an hour or more the children played, subduedly intent, fertile of imagination, united in fear of the mother's wrath and in dread of their father's homecoming, Mrs. Bates sat in her rocking chair making a singlet of thick cream-colored flannel, which gave a dull, wounded sound as she tore off the gray edge. She worked at her sewing with energy, listening to the children, and her anger wearied itself, lay down to rest, opening its eyes from time to time and steadily watching, its ears raised to listen. Sometimes even her anger quailed and shrank, and the mother suspended her sewing, tracing the footsteps that thudded along the sleepers outside. She would lift her head sharply to bid the children hush, but she recovered herself in time, and the footsteps went past the gate, and the children were not flung out of their playing world. But at last Annie sighed and gave in. She glanced at her wagon of slippers and loathed the game. She turned plaintively to her mother. Mother! But she was inarticulate. John crept out like a frog from under the sofa. His mother glanced up. Yes, she said. Just look at the, those shirt sleeves. 
The boy held them out to survey them, saying nothing. Then somebody called in a hoarse voice away down the line, and suspense bristled in the room, till two people had gone by outside, talking. "'It is time for bed,' said the mother. "'My father hasn't come,' wailed Annie plaintively. But her mother was primed with courage. "'Never mind. They'll bring him when he does come, like a log.' She meant there would be no scene. And he may sleep on the floor till he wakes himself. I know he'll not go to work tomorrow after this. The children had their hands and faces wiped with a flannel. They were very quiet. When they had put on their night dresses, they said their prayers, the boy mumbling. The mother looked down at them, at the brown silken bush of intertwining curls in the nape of the girl's neck, at the little black head of the lad, and her heart burst with anger at their father, who caused all three such distress. The children hid their faces in her skirts for comfort. When Mrs. Bates came down, the room was strangely empty, with a tension of expectancy. She took up her sewing and stitched for some time without raising her head. Meantime, her anger was tinged with fear. 2. The clock struck eight, and she rose suddenly, dropping her sewing on her chair. She went to the stairfoot door, opened it, listening. Then she went out, locking the door behind her. Something scuffled in the yard, and she started, though she knew it was only the rats with which the place was overrun. The night was very dark. In the great bay of railway lines, bulked with trucks, there was no trace of light. Only a way back she could see a few yellow lamps at the pit top and the red smear of the burning pit bank on the night. She hurried along the edge of the track, then, crossing the converging lines, came to the stile by the white gates, whence she emerged on the road. Then the fear which had led her shrank. People were walking up to New Brinsley. She saw the lights in the houses. Twenty yards further on were the broad windows of the Prince of Wales, very warm and bright, and the loud voices of men could be heard distinctly. What a fool she had been to imagine that anything had happened to him. He was merely drinking over there at the Prince of Wales. She faltered. She had never yet been to fetch him, and she never would go. So she continued her walk towards the long, straggling line of houses, standing blank on the highway. She entered a passage between the dwellings. Mr. Wrigley? Yes. Did you want him? No, he's not in at this minute. The raw-boned woman leaned forward from her dark scullery and peered at the other, upon whom fell a dim light through the blind of the kitchen window. Is it Mrs. Bates? she asked in a tone tinged with respect. Yes, I wondered if your master was at home. Mine hasn't come yet. Hasn't he? Oh, Jack's been home and had his dinner and gone out. He's just gone for half an hour afore bedtime. Did you call it the Prince of Wales? No. No, and you didn't like. It's not very nice. The other woman was indulgent. There was an awkward pause. Jack never said nothing about, about your mester, she said. No, I expect he's stuck in there. Elizabeth Bates said this bitterly and with recklessness. She knew that the woman across the yard was standing at her door listening, but she did not care. As she turned, Stop a minute. I'll just go and ask Jack if he knows anything, said Mrs. Wrigley. Oh, no, I, I wouldn't like to put... Yes, I will, if you'll just step inside and see as the children doesn't come downstairs and set themselves afire. Elizabeth Bates, murmuring a remonstrance, stepped inside. The other woman apologized for the state of the room. 
the kitchen needed apology. There were little frocks and trousers and childish undergarments on the squab and on the floor, and a litter of playthings everywhere. On the black American cloth of the table were pieces of bread and cake, crusts, slops, and a teapot with cold tea. Eh, ours is just as bad, said Elizabeth Bates, looking at the woman, not at the house. Mrs. Wrigley put a shawl over her head and hurried out, saying, I shanna be a minute. The other sat, noting with faint disapproval the general untidiness of the room. Then she fell to counting the shoes of various sizes scattered over the floor. There were twelve. She sighed and said to herself, No wonder, glancing at the litter. There came the scratching of two pairs of feet on the yard, and the Wrigleys entered. Elizabeth Bates rose. Wrigley was a big man with very large bones. His head looked particularly bony. Across his temple was a blue scar caused by a wound got in the pit, a wound in which the coal dust remained blue like tattooing. "'Hasna ye come home yet?' asked the man without any form of greeting but with deference and sympathy. "'I couldna say where he is. He's none o'er there.' He jerked his head to signify the Prince of Wales. "'He's happened to gone up to the U,' said Mrs. Wrigley. There was another pause. Wrigley had evidently something to get off his mind. "'I left him finishing a stint,' he began. "'Loose all had been gone about ten minutes when we coming away, "'and I shouted, Arthur, coming, Walt!' "'And he said, Go on, I shanna be but half a minute.' "'So we come to the bottom, me and Bowers, "'thinking as he were just behind and had come up the next mantle.' "'He stood perplexed, as if answering a charge of deserting his mate. "'Elizabeth Bates, now again certain of disaster,' hastened to reassure him. "'I expect he's gone up to the yew tree, as you say. "'It's not the first time. "'I've fretted myself into a fever before now. "'He'll come home when they carry him.' "'Ay, isn't it too bad?' deplored the other woman. "'I'll just step up to Dick's and see if he is there,' "'offered the man, afraid of appearing alarmed, "'afraid of taking liberties. "'Oh, I wouldn't think of bothering you that far.' said Elizabeth Bates with emphasis, but he knew she was glad of his offer. As they stumbled up the entry, Elizabeth Bates heard Wrigley's wife run across the yard and open her neighbor's door. At this, suddenly all the blood in her body seemed to switch away from her heart. Mind, warned Wrigley, I've said many a time as I'd fill up them ruts in this entry, somebody'll be breaking their legs yet. She recovered herself and walked quickly along with the miner. I don't like leaving the children in bed and nobody in the house, she said. No, you donna, he replied courteously. They were soon at the gate of the cottage. Well, I shanna be many minutes. Donna, you be frettin' now. He'll be all right, said the buddy. Thank you very much, Mr. Wrigley, she replied. You're welcome, he stammered, moving away. I shanna be many minutes. The house was quiet. Elizabeth Bates took off her hat and shawl and rolled back the rug. When she had finished, she sat down. It was a few minutes past nine. She was startled by the rapid chuff of the winding engine at the pit and the sharp whirr of the brakes on the rope as it descended. Again she felt the painful sweep of her blood, and she put her hand to her side, saying aloud, "'Good gracious, it's only the nine o'clock deputy going down,' rebuking herself. She sat still, listening." Half an hour of this, and she was wearied out. What am I working myself up like this for? She said pitiably to herself. 
I'll only be doing myself some damage. She took out her sewing again. At a quarter to ten, there were footsteps. One person. She watched for the door to open. It was an elderly woman in a black bonnet and a black woolen shawl. His mother. She was about sixty years old, pale with blue eyes and her face all wrinkled and lamentable. She shut the door and turned to her daughter-in-law peevishly. Eh, Lizzie, whatever shall we do? Whatever shall we do? She cried. Elizabeth drew back a little, sharply. What is it, mother? She asked. The elder woman seated herself on the sofa. I don't know, child, I can't tell you. She shook her head slowly. Elizabeth sat watching her, anxious and vexed. I don't know, replied the grandmother, sighing very deeply. There's no end to my troubles, there isn't. The things I've gone through, I'm sure it's enough. She wept without wiping her eyes, the tears running. But mother, interrupted Elizabeth, what do you mean? What is it? The grandmother slowly wiped her eyes. The fountains of her tears were stopped by Elizabeth's directness. She wiped her eyes slowly. Poor child, eh, you poor thing, she moaned. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't, and you as you are. It's a thing. It is indeed. Elizabeth waited. Is he dead? She asked, and at the words her heart swung violently, though she felt a slight flush of shame at the ultimate extravagance of the question. Her words sufficiently frightened the old lady, almost brought her to herself. Don't say so, Elizabeth. We'll hope it's not as bad as that. No, may the Lord spare us that, Elizabeth. Jack Wrigley came just as I was sitting down to a glass afore going to bed, and he said, Appen, you'll go down the line, Mrs. Bates. Walt's had an accident. Appen, you'll go and sit with her till we can get him home. I hadn't time to ask him a word afore he was gone, and I put my bonnet on and came straight down, Lizzie. I thought to myself, eh, that poor blessed child, if anybody should come and tell her of a sudden, there's no knowing what'll happen to her. You mustn't let it upset you, Lizzie, or you know what to expect. How long is it? Six months? Or is it five, Lizzie? Aye. The old woman shook her head. Time slips on. It slips on. Aye. Elizabeth's thoughts were busy elsewhere. If he was killed, would she be able to manage on the little pension and what she could earn? She counted up rapidly. If he was hurt, they wouldn't take him to the hospital. How tiresome he would be to nurse. But perhaps she'd be able to get him away from the drink and his hateful ways. She would, while he was ill. The tears offered to come to her eyes at the picture. But what sentimental luxury was this she was beginning? She turned to consider the children. At any rate, she was absolutely necessary for them. They were her business. Aye, repeated the old woman. It seems but a week or two since he brought me his first wages. Aye, he was a good lad, Elizabeth. He was in his way. I don't know why he got to be such a trouble. I don't. He was a happy lad at home, only full of spirits. But there's no mistake he's been a handful of trouble. He has. I hope the Lord'll spare him to mend his ways. I hope so. I hope so. You've had a sight of trouble with him, Elizabeth. You have indeed. But he was a jolly enough lad with me. He was. I can assure you. I don't know how it is. The old woman continued to muse aloud, a monotonous, irritating sound, while Elizabeth thought concentratedly, startled once, when she heard the winding engine chuff quickly and the brakes scurr with a shriek. Then she heard the engine more slowly, and the brakes made no sound. The old woman did not notice. Elizabeth waited in suspense. The mother-in-law talked with lapses into silence. 
But he wasn't your son, Lizzie, and it makes a difference. Whatever he was, I remember him when he was little, and I learned to understand him and to make allowances. You've got to make allowances for them. It was half past ten, and the old woman was saying, But it's trouble from beginning to end. You're never too old for trouble, never too old for that. When the gate banged back, and there were heavy feet on the steps. I'll go, Lizzie, let me go, cried the old woman, rising, but Elizabeth was at the door. It was a man in pit clothes. They're bringing him in, missus, he said. Elizabeth's heart halted a moment. Then it surged on again, almost suffocating her. Is he, is it bad? she asked. The man turned away, looking at the darkness. The doctor says he'd been dead hours. He saw him in the lamp cabin. The old woman, who stood just behind Elizabeth, dropped into a chair and folded her hands, crying, Oh, my boy, my boy! Hush, said Elizabeth with a sharp twitch of a frown. Be still, mother. Don't waken the children. I wouldn't have them down for anything. The old woman moaned softly, rocking herself. The man was drawing away. Elizabeth took a step forward. How was it? she asked. Well, I couldn't say for sure, the man replied, very ill at ease. He were finishing a stint and the buddies had gone and a lot of stuff came down atop of him. And crushed him? cried the widow with a shudder. No, said the man. It fell at the back of him. It were under the face and it never touched him. It shut him in. It seems he were smothered. Elizabeth shrank back. She heard the old woman behind her cry. What? What did he say it was? The man replied more loudly. He were smothered. Then the old woman wailed aloud, and this relieved Elizabeth. Oh, mother, she said, putting her hand on the old woman. Don't waken the children. Don't waken the children. She wept a little, unknowing, while the old mother rocked herself and moaned. Elizabeth remembered that they were bringing him home, and she must be ready. They'll lay him in the parlor, she said to herself, standing a moment, pale and perplexed. Then she lighted a candle and went into the tiny room. The air was cold and damp, but she could not make a fire. There was no fireplace. She set down the candle and looked round. The candlelight glittered on the luster glasses, on the two vases that held some of the pink chrysanthemums, and on the dark mahogany. There was a cold, deathly smell of chrysanthemums in the room. Elizabeth stood looking at the flowers. She turned away and calculated whether there would be room to lay him on the floor, between the couch and the chiffonier. She pushed the chairs aside. There would be room to lay him down and to step round him. Then she fetched the old red tablecloth and another old cloth, spreading them down to save her bit of carpet. She shivered on leaving the parlor. So, from the dresser drawer, she took a clean shirt and put it at the fire to air. All the time her mother-in-law was rocking herself in the chair and moaning. "'You'll have to move from there, mother,' said Elizabeth. "'They'll be bringing him in. Come in the rocker.' The old mother rose mechanically and seated herself by the fire, continuing to lament. Elizabeth went into the pantry for another candle, and there, in the little penthouse under the naked tiles, she heard them coming. She stood still in the pantry doorway, listening. She heard them pass the end of the house and come awkwardly down the three steps, a jumble of shuffling footsteps and muttering voices. The old woman was silent. The men were in the yard. Then Elizabeth heard Matthews, the manager of the pit, say, You go in first, Jim. Mind. 
The door came open, and the two women saw a collier backing into the room, holding one end of a stretcher on which they could see the nailed pit boots of the dead man. The two carriers halted, the man at the head stooping to the lintel of the door. "'Where will you have him?' asked the manager, a short, white-bearded man. Elizabeth roused herself and came from the pantry, carrying the unlighted candle. "'In the parlor,' she said. "'In there, Jim,' pointed the manager, and the carriers backed round into the tiny room. The coat with which they had covered the body fell off as they awkwardly turned through the two doorways, and the woman saw their man, naked to the waist, lying stripped for work. The old woman began to moan in a low voice of horror. "'Lay the stretcher at the side,' snapped the manager, "'and put him on the cloths. Mind now, mind, look you now.' One of the men had knocked off a vase of chrysanthemums. He stared awkwardly. Then they set down the stretcher. Elizabeth did not look at her husband. As soon as she could get in the room, she went and picked up the broken vase and the flowers. "'Wait a minute,' she said. The three men waited in silence while she mopped up the water with a duster. "'Eh, what a job, what a job, to be sure,' the manager was saying, rubbing his brow with trouble and perplexity. "'Never knew such a thing in my life, never. He'd no business to have been left. I never knew such a thing in my life. Fell over him clean as a whistle and shut him in. Not four foot of space, there wasn't, yet it scarce bruised him.' He looked down at the dead man, lying prone, half-naked, all grimed with coal dust. Asphyxiated, the doctor said. It is the most terrible job I've ever known. Seems as if it was done on purpose. Clean over him and shut him in like a mouse trap. He made a sharp, descending gesture with his hand. The colliers standing by jerked aside their heads in hopeless comment. The horror of the thing bristled upon them all. Then they heard the girl's voice upstairs calling shrilly, Mother, mother, who is it? Mother, who is it? Elizabeth hurried to the foot of the stairs and opened the door. "'Go to sleep,' she commanded sharply. "'What are you shouting about? Go to sleep at once. There's nothing.' Then she began to mount the stairs. They could hear her on the boards and on the plaster floor of the little bedroom. They could hear her distinctly. "'What's the matter now? What's the matter with you, silly thing?' Her voice was much agitated with an unreal gentleness. "'I thought it was some men come,' said the plaintive voice of the child." Has he come? Yes, they've brought him. There's nothing to make a fuss about. Go to sleep now like a good child. They could hear her voice in the bedroom. They waited whilst she covered the children under the bedclothes. Is he drunk? asked the girl, timidly, faintly. No, no, he's not. He, he's asleep. Is he asleep downstairs? Yes, and don't make a noise. There was silence for a moment. Then the men heard the frightened child again. What's that noise? It's nothing, I tell you. What are you bothering for? The noise was the grandmother moaning. She was oblivious of everything, sitting on her chair, rocking and moaning. The manager put his hand on her arm and bade her, shh, shh. The old woman opened her eyes and looked at him. She was shocked by this interruption and seemed to wonder. What time is it? The plaintive, thin voice of the child, sinking back unhappily into sleep, asked this last question. Ten o'clock, answered the mother more softly. Then she must have bent down and kissed the children. Matthews beckoned to the men to come away. They put on their caps and took up the stretcher. Stepping over the body, they tiptoed out of the house. None of them spoke till they were far from the wakeful children. 
When Elizabeth came down, she found her mother alone on the parlor floor, leaning over the dead man, the tears dropping on him. We must lay him out, the wife said. She put on the kettle, then returning, knelt at the feet and began to unfasten the knotted leather laces. The room was clammy and dim with only one candle, so that she had to bend her face almost to the floor. At last she got off the heavy boots and put them away. You must help me now, she whispered to the old woman. Together they stripped the man. When they arose, saw him lying in the naive dignity of death, the women stood arrested in fear and respect. For a few moments they remained still, looking down, the old mother whimpering. Elizabeth felt countermanded. She saw him, how utterly inviolable he lay in himself. She had nothing to do with him. She could not accept it. Stooping, she laid her hand on him, in claim. He was still warm, for the mine was hot where he had died. His mother had his face between her hands and was murmuring incoherently. The old tears fell in succession as drops from wet leaves. The mother was not weeping, merely her tears flowed. Elizabeth embraced the body of her husband with cheek and lips. She seemed to be listening, inquiring, trying to get some connection, but she could not. She was driven away. He was impregnable. She rose, went into the kitchen, where she poured warm water into a bowl, brought soap and flannel and a soft towel. I must wash him, she said. Then the old mother rose stiffly and watched Elizabeth as she carefully washed his face, carefully brushing the big blonde mustache from his mouth with the flannel. She was afraid with a bottomless fear, so she ministered to him. The old woman, jealous, said, Let me wipe him. And she kneeled on the other side, drying slowly as Elizabeth washed, her big black bonnet sometimes brushing the dark head of her daughter. They worked thus in silence for a long time. They never forgot it was death, and the touch of the man's dead body gave them strange emotions, different in each of the women. A great dread possessed them both. The mother felt the lie was given to her womb. She was denied. The wife felt the utter isolation of the human soul. The child within her was a weight apart from her. At last it was finished. He was a man of handsome body, and his face showed no traces of drink. He was blonde, full-fleshed, with fine limbs. But he was dead. Bless him, whispered his mother, looking always at his face and speaking out of sheer terror. Dear lad, bless him. She spoke in a faint, sibilant ecstasy of fear and mother love. Elizabeth sank down again to the floor and put her face against his neck and trembled and shuddered. But she had to draw away again. He was dead, and her living flesh had no place against his. A great dread and weariness held her. She was so unavailing. Her life was gone like this. White as milk he is, clear as a twelve-month baby. Bless him, the darling the old mother murmured to herself. Not a mark on him, clear and clean and white, beautiful as ever a child was made, she murmured with pride. Elizabeth kept her face hidden. He went peaceful, Lizzie, peaceful as sleep. Isn't he beautiful, the lamb? Ay, he must have made his peace, Lizzie. Happen he made it all right, Lizzie, shut in there. He'd have time. He wouldn't look like this if he hadn't made his peace. The lamb, the dear lamb, Eh, but he had a hearty laugh. I love to hear it. He had the heartiest laugh, Lizzie, as a lad. Elizabeth looked up. 
The man's mouth was fallen back, slightly open under the cover of the mustache. The eyes, half shut, did not show glazed in the obscurity. Life, with its smoky burning gone from him, had left him apart and utterly alien to her, and she knew what a stranger he was to her. In her womb was ice of fear because of this separate stranger with whom she had been living as one flesh. Was this what it all meant? Utter, intact separateness, obscured by heat of living? In dread she turned her face away. The fact was too deadly. There had been nothing between them, and yet they had come together, exchanging their nakedness repeatedly. Each time he had taken her, they had been two isolated beings, far apart as now. He was no more responsible than she. The child was like ice in her womb. For as she looked at the dead man, her mind, cold and detached, said clearly, Who am I? What have I been doing? I have been fighting a husband who did not exist. He existed all the time. What wrong have I done? What was that I have been living with? There lies the reality, this man. And her soul died in her for fear. She knew she had never seen him. He had never seen her. They had met in the dark and had fought in the dark, not knowing whom they met nor whom they fought. And now she saw and turned silent in seeing, for she had been wrong. She had said he was something he was not. She had felt familiar with him whereas he was apart all the while, living as she never lived, feeling as she never felt. In fear and shame she looked at his naked body that she had known falsely, and he was the father of her children. Her soul was torn from her body and stood apart. She looked at his naked body and was ashamed, as if she had denied it. After all, it was itself. It seemed awful to her. She looked at his face and she turned her own face to the wall, for his look was other than hers, his way was not her way. She had denied him what he was, she saw it now. She had refused him as himself. And this had been her life and his life. She was grateful to death, which restored the truth. And she knew she was not dead. And all the while her heart was bursting with grief and pity for him. What had he suffered? What stretch of horror for this helpless man? She was rigid with agony. She had not been able to help him. He had been cruelly injured, this naked man, this other being, and she could make no reparation. There were the children, but the children belonged to life. This dead man had nothing to do with them. He and she were only channels through which life had flowed to issue in the children. She was a mother, but how awful she knew it now to have been a wife. And he, dead now, how awful he must have felt it to be a husband. She felt that in the next world he would be a stranger to her. If they met there, in the beyond, they would only be ashamed of what had been before. The children had come, for some mysterious reason, out of both of them, but the children did not unite them. Now he was dead. She knew how eternally he was apart from her, how eternally he had nothing more to do with her. She saw this episode of her life closed. They had denied each other in life. Now he had withdrawn and anguish came over her. It was finished then. It had become hopeless between them long before he died. Yet he had been her husband. But how little! Have you got his shirt, Elizabeth? Elizabeth turned without answering, though she strove to weep and behave as her mother-in-law expected. But she could not. She was silenced. She went into the kitchen and returned with the garment. It is aired, she said, grasping the cotton shirt here and there to try. 
She was almost ashamed to handle him. What right had she or anyone to lay hands on him? But her touch was humble on his body. It was hard work to clothe him. He was so heavy and inert. A terrible dread gripped her all the while, that he could be so heavy and utterly inert, unresponsive, apart. The horror of the distance between them was almost too much for her. It was so infinite a gap she must look across. At last it was finished. They covered him with a sheet and left him lying with his face bound. And she fastened the door of the little parlor, lest the children should see what was lying there. Then, with peace sunk heavy on her heart, she went about making tidy the kitchen. She knew she submitted to life, which was her immediate master. But from death, her ultimate master, she winced with fear and shame. Okay, so we're back, Mike. That was Order of Chrysanthemums. What's your general impression of the story before we, or we could just launch into the draft if you'd like to do that. Yeah, why don't we go into the draft? But I did come up with something that people should have done before listening to the story. Oh. <laughs> which, which is, I think you should you should look look up an image of chrysanthemums. Oh. Because as someone who's a city kid, yeah. And really did not learn about flowers and how distinct flowers are from each other and how they look and the smell of it. I mean, you can't go out. I, I'm not going to give you homework to go out and buy some chrysanthemums and smell them, but look at an image of them too. Cause I think it's a, it's a great title. Yeah. Right. The title kind of pays off. Like it, it is yeah. kind of a through line that you can see how it matters. So the, in the story, they're described as pink and disheveled. Does your image that you looked up of chrysanthemums, do they generally look pink and disheveled or were these particular chrysanthemums that had maybe seen some hard times? I think the latter. Yeah, I've never. Yeah. I think that's a great adjective for flowers. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, as always, I will let you pick first as our guest and uh, let's Let's hear what you have. What is your top thing or the first thing you want to talk about of the things that you liked about or that you want to comment upon in the story, Order of Chrysanthemums? First thing is the the tunnel vision of the plot, mm. the, the structure. I mean, it, you know, where is the husband? Yeah, um, right. It's It felt dated. At the same time, it kept me really going mm -hmm. because it seems unfair yeah, and the feeling, the the phrase she says, maybe even more than once, of he walked right past his door. Yeah, what's to that? To go to the pub, you know, <laughs> like he, like here's a guy who's supposed to come home, and he not only doesn't come home, he walks right past his own front door in order to go to the pub. That that always that really struck me as, yeah, she has a grievance. That's fair. That's legitimate. That's sort of eerie to think of a guy who's. Uh, not just that he's dragging his feet late getting home, but that he would walk past his own front door to go to the pub. 
Yeah, I mean, and I always like to, with short stories, I mean, much easier than novels, try to envision how this could be written with the same material, but changing the order mm-hmm. of scenes and or shortening certain things. And, you know, you sort of start to think this whole front of the story, the, the, the part of the story where the before the husband's dead body appears, it, it goes on and on and on. But I yeah. think. The way it works is it's so spare. There's no other distraction. There are no other distractions. You're just, you're literally like, where, where is this? Where is the husband? Yeah. Where is he? And is, I mean, it, it, it sets up all of her feelings. I guess this is going into my number one too, because it was just the setup. Yeah. The whole way that it lets you see her view of the marriage before you introduce the shock of him having died, that this is, she's got legitimate grievances about the way things have gone. And you see it in the way that she has to, she's the way she has to deal with the kids and explain to them, you know, that where the father is and okay, we'll wait, we'll wait, we'll wait. Well, now it's time to eat. We're eating in the dark and he's still not here. And then she has to go find him and fish him out of these pubs. And everybody is kind of saying, oh, what a shame. That he's probably, you know, at the tying one on again at this, uh, you know, this pub or that. But the other thing, and and people will, she's too proud to go in there herself. And other people feel sorry for her and she accepts their sympathy, but it also bothers her. You know, this is, this is not something that a wife should have to be doing to chase after her husband like this. But at the same time, you kind of are getting the sense of, you can see why he does it because of the conditions he's working in are atrocious. And it, he's not the only man in the village who is like this. You know, this is, uh, this is almost like part of the fabric of their lives. Yeah. And it, the, the structure is really perfect. Uh, and the, the use of chrysanthemums there, you, you sort of forget that she's tucked uh, a few petals in her apron. Mm-hmm. Um, which I really liked. Um, yeah, the kids notice it, right? The daughter. Yeah. And there's so much dialogue and dialect that you're very much, it wears on you almost as a reader because you kind of want to throttle the husband. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm uh, I'm still on my number one with the setup and the atmosphere, and I just jotted down a few phrases. Usually I don't like stories or novels that start out with a half a page or a page of description because it feels like, oh, let's just get on with it. We get it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, weave this in to the story. Oh, I, actually, and, I actually like that. <laughs> but this one I liked, yeah. <laughs> And and it had, you know, the fields that were dreary and forsaken and the the there's a sentence. The pit bank loomed up beyond the pond, flames like red sores licking its ashy sides in the afternoon's stagnant light. Yeah. And I, I, I love that it ends with the miners who are being turned up. Yeah. The miners single trailing in in groups pass like shadows diverging home. It really puts you in this place of, well, this is, you know, you can read other accounts of what it's like to actually be in the mines, but this is such a Mm -hmm. great description of what it's like to 
live in a place where every where the miners all live and this is what it's like when they come home there's always these trains you know we'll see that in the next story we're going to be talking about too but it's uh they come home on these trains and then they they go to these little homes that are dark and it's like a dark grim and grimy life when you get that opening you feel like you know the grime and you know the 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 mother and um and you know the kind of kids and i think you you sort of make a lot of assumptions but then you learn these little details like that she's pregnant yeah and the mother-in-law is there to give like the side of the husband's story because you know he never speaks he's dead it's an interesting these tiny little uh details that keep you from getting overly frustrated but i i did it, it did start to wear on me and i think it it is supposed to wear on the reader a little bit you mean that the, the conditions yeah right right yeah like that she she you know you get this incredible payoff which is my number 2 which is you know this religious feel this parable the the, the naked body scene oh okay yeah and I, you know when they they strip the husband and mm-hmm. The the wife has these realizations that, you know, they didn't know each other and they'll, they'll never know each other. There's a great line about now he was dead. She knew how eternally he was apart from her, how eternally he had nothing more to do with her. Mm, yeah, it's, it, it's completely unromantic, completely uh, almost unsympathetic. Yeah. Um, and it's great. I mean, she was she was like she was grateful to death, which restored the truth, and she knew she was not dead. I mean, that I was thinking everyone, if if you're being honest, admits that. I had this on my you're, list as you're well. Not dead. Yeah, yeah, this was one of my choices too. It feels like the ending is just a home run uh, yeah. because it's so it's so convincing. And it's also so surprising that it it feels like, you know, what we're going to get is uh, she's maybe been nagging at him, but then he comes home and, you know, or his body is brought home and she immediately feels remorse. She feels terrible about how she had always, you know, she wishes she would have given him a little more, cut him a little more slack or feels like this is terrible. He's He's been killed in these mines. He gave his life to these mines. Maybe I, I could have done more. To, you know, all the all the things that you might expect from like a television movie or something. We're not getting that. We're getting. She's got a little bit of sympathy for him, but she's also just kind of mourning their marriage and what a what a farce it was in a way that it it wasn't based on the truth. It was and it wasn't based on. You know, their children did not unite them. And she says if they met in the afterlife, they'd be strangers. They had denied each other in life. She had never known him and he had never known her. And the yeah, you already said the line about she was grateful to death, which restored the truth. It's it's uh it's so powerful to read. Yeah, it's the balance of description. I guess writing in the nineteen tens, I expect a lot more description. Mm-hmm. And I think in both stories, there and we talked about this at the beginning. There, there's a real directness in his writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, when people are unhappy, they they just kind of like take action. They announce it. And they take action. Yeah. 
there isn't a lot of like staring into the landscape and gaining some soaker from the the view and i don't know i I think i i had a very different impression of lawrence in my head it was fascinating to read these yeah uh did you have a number three i did i i I thought you know i think it's really hard to write children that are because the Mm. tendency is to make them very sentimental and sympathetic Mm -hmm. and i i really did like when it whenever the children interjected it was you know they they refer to the husband as my father mm-hmm. um, little things uh, and like you were mentioning like eating in the dark and um yeah I, I think the children are very effective in this story yeah okay and my last thing was uh, you've already mentioned it is the mother-in-law and yeah. it really i thought the way that the mother-in-law is there to kind of give a uh a different view of the man. You know, she's she's really unconditional love. It's the love of a parent for a child and uh, a feeling of, you know, we failed him or life was too right. hard for him. It, it, it's such a shame. And the wife is very respectful of that, right? She's 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 not there to kind of challenge her mother-in-law and and try to tell the truth to her, but she has such a different view of the relationship that she had with this man and her view of this man and his life. And so Mm -hmm. I really liked that you, you see both of those and the way that those two different concepts play off of each other. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the mother-in-law was where I felt like this was at risk of becoming an O. Henry story. Uh It it didn't do that, which was, which was good because you know the the we feel like the you know the the husband is drunk and you know maybe died falling into a ditch i just feel like it it it's going to be his fault right the the way the story will end up and it does it turns out not to be and he's you know working to support the family but it, it that that twist doesn't put me um in his camp Right. Which is what an O. Henry story would do. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, this changes everything. The poor guy, he was yeah. he was killed in a tragedy, and now we can only think good of him, and we, we can only, you know, yeah. it changes how we think of him. Lawrence doesn't go there, and it feels truer to me that the wife wouldn't totally go there either. Right. She might be conflicted about it, but but what I liked about having the mother there is that if if the wife felt... Uh, the way she feels about this guy mm-hmm. when, like you say, he didn't drink himself to death or something that was his fault, and yet she's still pretty negative about him, then yeah. it it might make her very unsympathetic, and we might feel like, well, this is, what kind of a monstrous person is this? He He died in a tragedy, in a coal mine. That's horrible. And he doesn't even get five minutes of you know, praise from his wife or in her mind, she's not thinking about, you know, that he he does seem to have been a hard worker who provided for his family or anything like that. But we kind of get that because we see the mother who's giving him all of this love and honoring his life with the way she thinks about him. And it kind of makes you realize, yeah, there's a difference between loving someone unconditionally and loving someone in actuality and and being with someone in actuality and seeing them flaws and all, you don't forget the flaws just because they've died. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, I, I, I'm very cynical when it comes to parents talking about how great their children were, adult, grown-up children. Because <laughs> I guess I've just read too many headlines where you, you get some um, parent or uncle or aunt saying like, yeah, she, he or she was a great kid. And they're, you know, the headline is they've they've committed murder or something. Yeah. Right. Um, so <laughs> I I just have this aversion to you know someone piping in like because I I always like to say nobody really knows a marriage except for the two people who are in it. Yeah. Well, this story is like this could be the poster child for that idea. Yeah. Yeah. And whenever a parent says like, "Oh, well, he was, you know, really precocious." kid fun loving kid i just uh i can't <laughs> i can't buy it okay so did we get through the three things on your list yep okay mine too so let's leave things there mike palindrome president of the literature supporters club thank you as always for joining me on the history of literature thanks jack Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed that story and that discussion. It's always great to have Mike here. I saw Mike when he was in D.C. at the Proust Conference. We had a very fine lunch at a historic hotel, and a lovely time was had by all, as they say. I think next time we are going to have our chat with a literary celebrity, a Booker Prize winner, We've had people from the long list before and the short list and the committee itself, but I think this is the first actual Booker Prize winner, although I'm probably offending a few people with that. And if so, my apologies. We haven't had a Nobel Prize winner, I don't think, although we've come close with the translator of a winner, which, hey, if you recall, during that interview, I was trying to suggest that part of the prize belonged to her. Since an excellent translation can help an author shine through the international air. But she was Canadian, and there was no way I could get her to claim even the tiniest bit of credit for that. Very gracious she was. Other prizes we've had. Let's see, we've had Pulitzer Prize winners, several of those. And National Book Award winners. We've been very fortunate here at the History of Literature podcast with some wonderfully distinguished guests. And of course, we have our routine visits from the president of the Literature Supporters Club, which is an honor as well as delight. I'm Jack Wilson, rejecting all prizes in advance, so don't even think of it, people. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'd be the biggest prize whore in the world if I ever thought I might actually win one. That's like that old line, I never sold out, but only because nobody was buying. You're not rejecting me, prizes. I broke up with you a long time ago. But that's okay. I take consolation in the purity of my prizeless existence. Winning the Nobel may be worth a million dollars, but being prizeless? Priceless. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>